How can you drive innovation and growth in your business and supply chain? Well, Kelly Saunders, the president of Morai Logistics, tells us more in the Women in Supply Chain series, part five at letstalksupplychain.com forward slash season two dash episode eight. Check it out. You're going to want to hear what she has to say. Welcome to Let's Talk Supply Chain. My name is Sarah Barnes Humphrey, and each week I bring you the top supply chain professionals in the industry. You will learn about best practices, new innovation, and most up-to-date information about supply chain. I believe that collaboration is the future of business, and I have designed this show to ensure you have all the information you need to succeed in business and in your supply chain. Welcome back to Let's Talk listeners. Thank you once again for tuning into the show and giving us some love on iTunes. Here is our review of the week and it is from Katie at Girl Gotch. I love this podcast. It's a must on your podcast list if you are a product-based business looking to grow. The guests are amazing, all different experience, backgrounds, and ideas. And I learned something new each time I listen. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening, Katie. And thank you so much for giving us such an amazing, amazing review. As we grow in the supply chain community, I want to feature you. So remember to rate us and review us on iTunes or send me an email at listener at letstalksupplychain.com. Or you could even send me an email, not only with a review, but maybe a topic suggestion or even a guest suggestion. Always looking to hear from our listeners. So today, Graham from Border Buddy is back and we are talking about the risks importers take by working with a customs broker. Now you're probably wondering, what risks? Well, the industry is evolving and a customs broker's role is expanding into areas that are very risky to not only their business, but to your business, and you might not even be aware of it. So welcome to the show, Graham. It's great to have you back. It's great to be here. Thank you. Awesome, awesome. Let's get right into the risks that importers should be aware of when working with a customs broker. And I know people are probably wondering, why are they even talking about this? But you and I had an extensive conversation about this a couple of weeks ago where I really think that importers need to be need to understand how the role of the customs broker has totally evolved into completely different areas that may, they might not even be aware of. So why don't we start with, you know, what is the traditional role of a customs broker in North America? Sure. You know, when you say traditional, it's kind of made me think a little bit about, you know, what, what has happened over the last hundred years or whatever. But, you know, essentially we you know, we gather the documents or the data for shipments that are crossing the border. We work with importers, exporters, transportation companies. We then actually declare the goods, you know, to customs on their behalf. And we do that by, you know, classifying every single item on the truck or in the container. Uh, we do that by using the harmonized tariff system. We then, you know, calculate the duties and taxes that are owed uh, on that shipment, and then we account for those, or we you know pay pay those for the importer uh, to customs directly. 
Um, and in, you know, in Canada and, and the U.S., generally we're you know privately owned companies, you know, working for importers, essentially on behalf of the government. You know, in Canada, we're we're bonded by the Canadian government, um, and uh, yeah, so we just we take care of all of that piece of of declaring what's coming into the country. Yeah, it's not only just declaring though; it's kind of also being a tax collector, is it not? Absolutely, and you know, uh, you know, I, there, there's there's actually some some um, interesting stuff in the media. I mentioned this to you last week. You know, um, there's this uh, Neil McDonald actually from CBC. He's got this thing about customs brokers, and he's actually used the word parasites. Like where he, he says we charge a lot for for importing into into Canada, but yeah, you know, we we are we are collecting billions of dollars of duties and taxes for these uh, shipments coming into the country. And we essentially do it, and I'm not necessarily lobbying for us, but I mean, we do it at no cost to the taxpayer. It, it's it's just paid for by the people that import. Um, so yeah, we were doing a lot. It's not just, you know, that was a high level description of what we do, but yeah, it's, it's duties and taxes and refunds and, you know, Clarifying what the goods are, making sure that it's it's allowed to be entered into Canada. It's not you know contraband or, or goods that are not allowed. So there's a lot of technical details that go into that. But uh, overall, it's the declaration and paying the duties and taxes on on behalf of the importers. Yeah, I was actually reading one of those articles that you sent over to me in preparation for this episode, and it seems like everybody's kind of losing money. Um, one of the articles that I read said that the government loses money by collecting duties and taxes on smaller shipments. So they spend, um, the stat was that they spend $166 million to collect $39 million. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Um, and I think that's why this, you know, we, uh, we've talked about it as well, but the de minimis rule and, and, you know, what is worth, uh, spending time collecting on versus what isn't and where should the the resources be allocated for customs, you know, to be spending their time and effort on uh, versus these uh, small shipments. And, and, you know, there's a lot of work involved in, in declaring all of that and, and the collection pieces. It's a lot. Yeah, of- and we're going to, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about de minimis going forward as well. Um, but the, I mean, the other thing to really talk about on the traditional side for a customs broker is, also, I think how it's, um, well, I guess let's get into, you know, how or why has the custom broker evolved um, into a bank? I mean, on one side, we just, we just mentioned that they're a tax collector. Um, and then, you know, sort of let's get into what is the risk to the importer. Now, before we just get into that, I want to just mention that um, things have also changed on behalf of the importer because now penalties have been put into place as well. And maybe we should, we should mention sort of what those are, but the customs broker is supposed to guide them onto which HS code to use. But at the end of the day, they're ultimately responsible. And if they use the wrong one, they're the ones that are subjects to, you know, paying those duties or paying any penalties. That's correct. And, and, you know, the, the U S and Canada differ a bit in how the, the, the role of the customs broker, but you know, you're exactly right. You know, it, it's, I always like to tell people that maybe aren't super familiar with importing that if you, if you compare it to, you know, your income tax or your accountant, you know, if you give false information to your accountant 
and they do a false tax return and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's still on you. It's still on the individual because it's the information that's provided. So it's similar to importing where we are declaring the information that we're given. If it's incorrect, uh, it's, it's still the importer's problem because it's, it's, they are the importer of record and uh, they are the ones that will be issued the fines and penalties. Now, of course, if a broker makes a mistake, then there's, you know, that's a sort of a civil issue, if you will, between the importer and the broker. But at the end of the day, the responsibility for accurate information, proper duties and taxes being accounted for is on the importer of record for sure. Yeah, which is kind of a funny thing because when an importer needs an HS code or an exporter even needs sort of the HS code, who do they go to? Right. And we, we have all types of customers. Some customers want to do that themselves and some customers want us to do it a hundred percent. So, you know, where do you get into challenges are when a importer doesn't ask, you know, doesn't provide the t- tariff classification and the broker is doing it a hundred percent. And then the tariff ends up being wrong. It's still a penalty to the importer, but then the importer and their customer or the importer have a, have a, a little bit of a battle or a, or a challenge going on figuring out why, you know, how that was assessed and what happened. And there are some cases where the, the broker makes a mistake and has to pay the penalty on behalf of the importer. That does happen from time to time. Yeah. But I think it's important to note, especially on the risk side, when you are working with a customs broker and you ask them to give you an HS code on your product at the end of the day, you're the one that knows your product the best, you know what it's made out of. And you're the one that is responsible for those penalties if anything really ultimately goes wrong. Um, so it's really just something that importers should know about, um, especially when dealing with a customs broker or relying on them for, for certain things. So let's talk about another risk to the importer. So we've talked about, you know, customs brokers evolving into tax collector or a bank mm-hmm. um, because they're holding on to duties and taxes. So I know in, in Canada, and I think it works a little bit differently in the U.S., and we can talk a little bit about that. But in Canada, um, there's only a few ways to sort of pay the duties and taxes. One is to your customs broker, and then the customs broker pays it on your behalf. Or you write a check to the receiver general and you still send that to the customs broker and the customs broker delivers that on your behalf. Um, or you can still do it direct, but still pay the, pay the customs broker and they sort of do one check to the, to the government. So what are kind of the risks when um, dealing with an intermediary, especially on you know, something as important as duties and taxes? Yeah, this is a fun one because, you know, historically, especially in Canada, the reason I think that the brokers became the people writing the checks is, is because until very recently, you know, we actually had to walk a check over to customs for monthly duties and taxes. Um, So, you know, for the importer to be able to do that, hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands of importers to be able to, to do that uh, directly to customs was, you know, super challenging just logistically. So we were, we were close to the border where we were located at the border. The duties and taxes are owed at the end of the month. We would write the checks, but you know, I'm, I'm a customs broker, but if I'm an importer, if I was an importer, there's no way I would pay my customs broker duty and taxes. 
I, I just think it's a it's a massive risk. You know, if they actually understand, yeah, and again, I go back to the accountant. If you're doing your GST return in Canada or your IRS payment in the U.S., you do not pay your accountant your GST. You know, you you pay that directly to the government. So importers are sort of used to paying a broker, but if the broker doesn't pay customs, those duties and taxes, the importer is still on the hook for them. So, you know, it's just, it's sort of a, probably just a legacy or a habit thing, but anyone that I talk to that's in, in finance, they don't want to pay the broker direct. They, they want to pay customs direct because they know that their payment arrives direct from them. Their account is then cleared off and, and there's no issues. Um, yeah, because I mean, you know, what sort of happens when something goes wrong? So um, I, that kind of brings me to another point with uh, bonds, right? So f- duty bonds, um, I mean, you have to have a, a bond, I guess, for duty or the customs broker has to have a bond for that. So if something were to go wrong, um, you know, you pay the customs broker and the customs broker pays the government on your behalf. But what if the company goes bankrupt? What if the customs broker goes bankrupt or something happens or they're not able to pay the government on time? You know, where does that leave the importer? Exactly. And, and, and uh, on, the, on the U.S. side, basically, it's mandated that everyone is, has a bond or pays essentially cash. You know, they, they have ACH down there for, um, their, you know, automated clearinghouse for, for direct payments to the government or they're, they're bonded for every single shipment. And on the Canadian side, it's a bit different. Um, you know, the, the, the importer doesn't necessarily need to be bonded. They can use the broker's bond. Uh, but, you know, if, if, if the payment doesn't get made to customs on their behalf, then they are liable for sure. And you see this with uh, CBSA on the Canadian side. They are definitely going more towards direct payment. You know, they, they want the bigger importers, especially that have millions of dollars a month in, in duties and taxes. Uh, they want them to pay direct. They know that this is a risk and a liability. Um, just just having those payments flow through a third party is not, you know, just is not normal in any other financial transaction that you would see. Yeah, but I, I think that importers are kind of used to it, right? Um, so they get used to it and don't really think about the risk factors. It's just kind of a way of doing business. So I think the important thing to note here is sort of the second risk is using your customs broker as a bank. And, you know, taking a look at that from the risk management side and really taking a look at your day-to-day operations and how can you change things slightly to make sure that you're paying the government direct and not relying on a third party to, to make those payments for you. Well, and it's, it's a really interesting uh, thing that I see happen from an importer's perspective too, because they, they don't tend to break out that, that their duty and taxes and brokerage fees, the fees that we charge are completely separate. Like the, this money flows right through our company. It's not, it doesn't go on our PL. It's, it's just, like you said, we're basically a bank, you know, we're lending, uh, then the money for a certain amount of time and then remitting it. But I'll, some of my customers will say, you know, I pay you $300,000 a month. You know, <laughs> we must be one of your best customers. I said, you know, like less than 2% of that, 1%, maybe half a percent is our fees and everything else is your payout. 
that we make no money on. You know, so it, it's um, it's kind of a bizarre scenario that that, like you said, importers have gotten used to. But I think you really need to, if you're an importer listening to this, there's no way you should be paying your broker. It's just, you know, all of our new customers that we sign up, you know, we are not paying duties and taxes on their behalf. They're paying direct and, and they're bonded direct and they're paying direct. Yeah. And if this doesn't change, I mean, really, we're they are going to be running even higher risks, right? Because if it doesn't change and the, the brokerage fees or the entry fees on an entry are keep going down, you're, you can't even, like a, a customs broker won't be able to survive because the cost of, of being that bank is going to be a lot higher than what they're actually taking in in revenue. Exactly. And the, the duties, you know, they're not necessarily going up, but they're sort of threats of, of higher duties and more tariffs and things like that. So the duty payments will be getting larger and larger. Uh, and that's, you know, it, it's, it's sort of, it can become this false sense of revenue because you have this, this large cash flow that comes in that has nothing to do with your operations. You know, you have this massive cash flow that comes in uh, from these importers that, you know, any customs broker, if you looked at their revenue, if someone's doing $10 million in revenue, for example, their actual cash flow is in the hundreds of millions of dollars because of the duties and taxes. So it, it, it's it's not right to have a, a company taking on all this cash flow. Um, it's, it's a bit of a risk for sure. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we talk about customs brokers, but I kind of, I kind of mentioned the same thing on the freight forwarding side, you know, like the, the margins have gone down on the freight forwarding side. So you're shipping a full container, let's say from China to Vancouver right? It costs, costs a couple of thousand dollars. Well, the freight forwarder isn't billing you until a couple of days before delivery because customs customers don't want to be billed too early. And the margins on that are ridiculous and, and they're not covering costs. And they have to pay the steamship line as soon as it docks in Vancouver. So they're not only paying the steamship line at least a few days, if not 10 days before they're billing the customer, and then they're waiting another 15 to 30, maybe even 45 days to get paid from the customer. Yeah. Uh, it's just, that is just a brutal business. You know, the freight side, I, I don't like it at all. It, you know, and as you know, you know, none of the local, you know, whether it's a steamship or it's the, the transportation companies, none of them give you credit either right so we're we're you have to write a lot of cod checks for like 27 dollars or 47 dollar document release or bill of lading fee or whatever the fees are and yes you're outlaying a huge amount of cash for a very small small margin it's not a you know it's not a great it's not a great model no, it's not a great model. I think a lot of people that aren't in sort of supply chain or freight and customs don't really realize the risks that are involved for the, you know, providers, the service providers. And I don't think importers really realize that as well. So, I mean, that's sort of risk number three is that you, you really run the risk of, you know, yeah, sure, you're, you're, maybe getting a lower brokerage fee or you're, you're getting, you know, really, really, really great freight rates. But on the other hand, how long are they going to be able to sustain themselves and be able to pull that out of the hat? And then what? 
You're going to have to go find another customs broker. You're going to have to teach them everything about your account. You're going to have to find another freight forwarder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of the other risk to maybe point out to importers is that, you know, it's not always best to be paying the least amount of money because it's just going to cause issues maybe in the future. So um, let's move on and talk sort of about, I know this is a fun one for you. So another fun one for you, um, the licensing of customs brokers. So how is the rule evolving even more? Um, because I know there, there's discussions popping up around the licensing of customs brokers. You know, what are the advantages, disadvantages of keeping it or not keeping it? And what does that mean to importers and customers? Customs brokers. Yeah, I go. You know, I really do go back and forth on this one, and I would say my overarching thing is, you know, at the end of the day, there has to be some sort of licensing or regulation. Like, let's face it if i if I'm a if I'm a devious or you know a criminal, I'm thinking about how can I charge my my customer a high amount of duty, but then remit a low amount of duty and and pocket you know the difference. So that's that, that's actually happened before in 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 the industry and that's that's just brutal you know you you need to have people that are collecting these billions of dollars of duties and taxes be sort of licensed or regulated in some some way um you know whether that's background checks criminal checks you know that those are things that i'm the licensed person for for our company and i have to have that done to to hold that license so i i do agree with that i just the, the challenge that comes up for me is, you know, that piece, the, the sort of, I don't know if it's the criminal aspect or if it's the uh, legal aspect that I, I really think is important versus, you know, do brokers need to be regulated to be in business or to transact, um, you know, on behalf of importers? I, I think it's just, it's more about this piece to make sure that they're, you know, an upstanding citizen. Um, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but it, it's really if, if there was no licensing and anyone could just start collecting $500,000 a month in duties and taxes and be responsible for remitting those to the government, you know, there needs to be some sort of regulation there. <laughs> okay, but then um, you're saying that everything is really going to start going the way of the U.S. and that they're going to start going direct and things like that. So. What does it mean at that point? If we're really just licensing customs brokers to transact and, and hold, be held accountable for the, for the large amounts of sort of duty and, and taxes that are being collected, if that role is taken away from a customs broker, what, yeah, does, you know, what then does that mean? Yeah, you're right. You know, what, what's sort of happening, uh, what, what we see coming down uh, from CBSA and from CBP in some cases is that um, that shift towards the importer treating their duties and taxes as they would a tax return so that they're responsible for doing it. And, you know, they are the people that are going to be held accountable or uh, responsible if anything um, goes wrong or if there's any sort of, um, you know, ill intent for, for, for declaring these shipments. So it's a, it's a balance, you know, I, I just, I, I, I don't know what the answer is other than I, I think anyone would, would say that there's got to be some sort of, um, you know, responsibility to, to collecting these large amounts of, of payout and making sure it gets, gets to the government. Yeah. Okay. But, um, 
I guess for the rest of the business though, to really, you know, do a, do a transaction to be able to clear a good into the country, um, slap an HS code on there. I mean, obviously the correct HS code, (laughs) um, and you know, doing the rest of it though, do we really need to be licensed to do that? Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. You know, there's, there's a lot of, as, as technology takes over and there's more data being transferred, it becomes more of an accounting. And when I say accounting, I mean, just getting the data from one spot to the other. Um, and I don't know about that from a licensing perspective, if, if that piece would ever be separated, but when it be, when it comes to just accounting for the goods and, and putting the HS code on, um, you know, I think, I think I saw it in the govern, uh, the, the, um, the report from CBSA, it said something like 70% of goods that enter Canada are duty free, you know, with, with all the tariffs, doesn't matter what country is coming from 70% is duty free. So, wow. yeah. So that means, you know, just 30% of the goods that enter are have duty and have that payout. Now, of course there's tax, but, um, yeah, so I think it's it's a discussion that's lively because, you know, like we talked about earlier, uh, even if we're licensed and we're regulated and we still make a mistake and are, are bad, let's say we're, we're say we're bad at it, it's still the importer's issue. So what they're really moving towards or talking about right now is should there be more, the licensing should be more linked to your compliance record or your accuracy record. So I don't know how they would uh, actually get to that, but that's that's what's being t- discussed right now at a high level. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. Well, it will be, we'll have to see sort of where those discussions go. I mean, I know that there's in a lot of different industries, um, a lot of different discussions going on, especially with the emergence of, you know, new innovation technology, like you mentioned. So it's kind of fun. Um, it's shaking things up a little bit and making people have conversations that they haven't had or even considered, um, you know, in the last 15 to 20 years, I guess. I mean, nobody's really had these discussions before because I guess the technology hasn't been there. So now you mentioned de minimis earlier. Now, de minimis, um, I guess we should sort of explain what that is first before we get into it, and I'll, I'll sort of leave that to you. But de minimis is is definitely going to change the game, um, especially here in Canada, if it is put through. So why don't you tell us what is de minimis, how will it change the role of the customs broker even further, and then we'll get into the advantages and disadvantages of it for an importer. Okay. Um, so, you know, de minimis actually, like the, the literal Latin term is, it means minimal things. So it means small things or minimal, uh, minimal things. And what's interesting is when de minimis was first brought in, most of the shipments that were crossing the border were very large, right? They were truckloads, ocean containers, you know, large shipments. So de minimis, was meant for these odd shipments that were small, samples and things like that. But with e-commerce, of course, the average value of shipments has gone down substantially. So before you would buy a truckload of televisions would come in and they w- it would be worth you know $500,000. But now you buy a TV, you can buy a TV now for $600. And um, that is now 
you know, in the U.S. especially, the, the de minimis value is $800. Um, so that means that the item can come in duty-free and without a formal customs entry if it's under $800. So the reason it's so uh, topical here is because in Canada and the U.S., we're so close to this, this border that connects us. People are saying, well, it's 800 in the U.S., it should be 800 into Canada, but it's only $20 into Canada. Now, I've been thinking about this one a lot, too, because, you know, you and I have had past discussions on it. But, you know, the de minimis is $20 in Canada. It's $800 into the U.S. People are saying it should be $800 into Canada. They should just make it even. But I started thinking about that, too. And, I go again, I go back and forth on this a bit. But the U.S. doesn't have tax at the border, right? So they don't have GST or PST. And so you start thinking about it, the retailers, the Canadian retailers really, pro, you know, they protest this idea of raising it from $20 to $800 because now you can bring in a $600 item for free. And so, you know, what's the answer? You know, I, I think the, the couriers and the carriers would like the $800 to be duty tax free because there's no formal entry so that those shipments can come in very quickly and very easily without any declaration. But does it make sense that they come in tax-free? You know, if 70% of the shipments are already duty-free, I could kind of see saying, look, don't worry about the duty on these, but they should still be assessed a tax because if you're going to go to the store and buy something for $600, you're going to pay GST. So, you know, this is why it's a, a big hot topic because it's, it's, it's a, trying to align it with the U.S., the carriers really want it to be high so that the shipments can flow in faster and they don't have to worry about paperwork and, and red tape at the border. Uh, but the government is sitting there going, well, you know, does it make sense to have all of this come in completely free? Yeah, I get that. But I mean, I, I sort of circle back to that Neil McDonald article, you know, we're spending 166 million to collect 39 million. Exactly. And then th this is the challenge, right? Is you've got the most, the most of that collection on the small items is done by the post office and the, the courier companies. So the, the FedExes and the UPSs and the DHLs of the world. Uh, and, and then also at the border itself, you know, you walk, you walk in, if you're, if you're actually declaring personally, you know, the, the, the thresholds are, are pretty small for what you can bring back personally um, duty or tax free. So it, it's, I don't actually don't have a great answer for this one. It's like, you know, I, I would like the de minimis to be, uh, higher, even though it would affect my business. So in other words, if I have it, if the de minimis moves from 20 to $800, technically that means any shipment now that's 600 that needs a formal customs entry, I don't clear that shipment. I don't make, you know, our brokerage fee on that shipment, but you know, they are, they are a lot of work. They are, you know, they, there's a lot of, you know, it's a, a consumer buying that product. They are a lot of work. They are, you know, you have to collect the $17 or whatever it is on the, on the payout. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. So I, I really, I would encourage the, the de minimis to go up. I just don't know the answer to the tax portion of that. You know, how do you, how do you streamline it so that the shipments could come in fast and not have much uh, friction on entering the country, but um, you don't you don't take the tax away. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, uh, we also have to look at it from a Canadian retailer or, or a Canadian consumer standpoint as well, right? Like a lot of Canadians pay double the order 
um, because of the broker fees, the duties, and the taxes. So if they're buying something from the U.S., so if an American's buying from Canada and it's under $800, they're laughing, right? I mean, our delivery charges are a little bit higher, which is a completely other conversation. Yeah. Um, but if a Canadian was to buy from an American retailer, then they are paying double the order because of the broker fees, because of the duties, because of the taxes. So from a retailer standpoint, they're like, yay, because, you know, people are still coming into our stores and buying from us or buying on online from us. Um, but from a consumer standpoint, it limits the amount of of choice, I guess we have access we, that we have to our, our neighbor to the South. I mean, at the end of the day, they're not that far and there's so many more of the, so much, so like, it's so much bigger. Um, there's so much more innovation. There's so much more that's coming out that we want to have access to um, that Canadians just can't really afford or, or pay for. So I think from a consumer standpoint, it would really, you know, open up, the borders um, to be able to get their hands on some of the new stuff, the new innovation, you know, at a much more reasonable price. And then, so then there's like an e-petition actually online that I found while I was doing some of the research. And I'll link to this in the show notes, but there's an e-petition going around to support the de minimis at $200. Yeah. And, and, you know, this, this all ties in. If you go back to the, the security piece, the payment piece, you know, you're absolutely right. The, 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 the customs system is not well suited for small shipments. So our fee, you know, our core customer is, is a large importer that imports, you know, 60, 70 shipments plus a month. You know, we have customers that import thousands of shipments a month. And so when you have this issue of a tiny shipment, a $200 shipment even, and, and, um, at at five percent, you're you're talking ten dollars payout. Uh, it's just a huge amount of work for a very small return, small value, right? And but I would also say that I don't know about how you feel about this, but I don't find that I shop in the U.S. for items that I can't get in Canada. So if I can easily get something in Canada, either online or last resort, go into a store. Um, I'm not looking to the, I'm not looking to, to buy it online or, or buy, you know, have it shipped internationally. It's usually when I can't find it locally. So no matter what, that item is going to be imported by someone else. That's, that's kind of my general overview on it. I could be wrong on it, but I don't generally buy things unless there's a huge price disparity um, that I can't find in Canada. Okay, but is that, so let me ask you though, is that because when you did go and try to find it in the States, you were paying double? Like it just didn't make financial sense to to actually buy it. Like you've sort of been trained that way. Um, Good question. I I would say that there's two things. There's a lot of U.S. shippers that don't ship to Canada at all. So even if you wanted to buy it, you couldn't get it. So you've looked in Canada, you can't find it. You can see it online. Oh, I can see this. It's online. It's in Texas but they don't ship to Canada. So then that's why there's, you know, another whole other conversation, but that's why there's all these mailboxes companies on this, you know, South side of the border here um, that, that take domestic shipments and then Canadians hop down and go, go pick them up because people don't ship. So there, that's how, that's what lengths we'll go through as Canadians 
to uh, you know a shop online, have it shipped to some locker in, in Blaine, Washington, or Sweetgrass, Montana, and we'll get in our car and drive down to go get it. That's how hard it is for us to get products. That's a good, that's a really good point. And then I guess the other thing to mention is on the small parcel side. Like if you're a an eBay um, supplier or vendor. Yeah. And you're selling to the states. It makes more sense to put everything in your car and drive to the border, especially in Ontario, to drive to the border and mail it in Buffalo. Because a nine by 11 package, I know personally, a nine by 11 package that barely weighs anything, I think it's like zero point, less than 0.5. Yeah. Going to the states costs mm, about 980. And shipping it domestically in Canada costs anywhere from ten eighty to fourteen dollars. Yeah, and talk about double. You know, the, the if you're shipping internationally versus shipping domestically, or shipping shipping from Canada to the U.S. versus, like you said, driving it across, the prices just they just go in half. You know. Yeah. Sorry. So the domestically that I was talking about was in Canada, yeah. and then. The 980 is from Canada to the U.S., but if, if you were to ship within the U.S. domestically, that same envelope is anywhere from 2 to $3. Yeah, and it's, uh, you could pretty much ship anywhere in the U.S. for that cost, right? It's, it's like it's, the U.S. has like these zones that are huge. You, you, know, you can ship from you know, New York to California for relatively inexpensively. Yeah, it's crazy. Crazy, crazy. Well, you know what? It'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, some are talking about the de minimis at $800. Some some are talking about 200 And in every case, um, so there's winners and there's losers, right? There's going to be some people that are going to be happy about it, and there's going to be some people that aren't happy about it. Um, but it's just something else for the importers to take a look at, maybe not on the risk side, Um because, well, importers and exporters, right? Because it'll affect both sides of the business, um, depending on which way this goes, or even if it gets, you know, put into place. And I guess maybe we'll sort of see that in, in the NAFTA discussions. I'm not entirely sure. We'll sort of have to wait to see about that. But I want to wind down sort of this conversation with NAFTA speculations, you know, with all the NAFTA speculations, you know, with them talking about coming to a deal and it should be soon, you know, what does it mean for importers? What, what should they be looking out for or maybe starting to think about in their business? Yeah, this is, this is the one I get asked about most right now is what's going on with NAFTA? What's going to happen? And, you know, it, it's, again, it's, this one's a bit of a tough one because, we really don't make a lot of products. You know, you know that that could be argued, but I mean, a, a, we are an import nation, right? Canada, especially, we import a lot, and we also export a lot. But we usually export our volumes or natural resources and things like that. So, you know, if you look at Canada, U.S., and Mexico, what's going to happen with these three countries? Uh, you know, what what is the trade agreement going to look like? Is it going to change? And it's sort of anyone's guess right now because there's a lot of uh, uh, bravado or whatever is happening right now with NAFTA. And we've got, you know, the U.S. wants to make sure that the U.S. gets treated fairly. And I, I, I understand that. Um, but, you know, we need products from other countries. You know, a lot, a lot, of, the, a lot of the things that we make, uh, in, in, even in Canada or the U.S. or Mexico, you know, the actual content comes from one, two, three, five, ten different countries. So, 
you know, as far as what's going to happen for importers, you know, the, the, the NAFTA side itself, I think what's underlying and, and um, maybe not talked about a lot is that Canada and U.S. have their own free trade agreement. And it, you know, it, it goes back before NAFTA. So that's another question is, is that agreement on the table? Because we have a free trade agreement with just the two countries. And so is, is the U.S. more concerned about Mexico? Uh, are they concerned about Canada? You know, if NAFTA gets scrapped, well, you know, are Canadians okay because we still have the Canadian and U.S. Uh, trade agreement? Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, something that we get, you know, looked at. We're looking at every day. Our, our compliance team gets asked every day about this. But um, I think really what, what, is, what we're seeing more from this government is, is a trend toward, towards tariffs and increasing, you know, costs of importing. So, you know, that's, that's the overall, you know, that could all change and NAFTA is, is fine and nothing, nothing has, uh, nothing gets changed at all. But I think that what we're, what we're seeing a more of a lean towards is, um, is adding more tariffs. Awesome. Yeah. I guess we're just all going to have to sort of wait and see, but it sounds like it's, it's definitely coming down the pipe. So thank you, Graham, for coming back on the show. It's always a great time and a really, really good conversation that I know our listeners will, um, you know, be taking notes and, and definitely be, you know, taking a look at those different risks that we pointed out. So make sure that you follow, follow Graham on LinkedIn. He's always posting amazing things. Um, and great articles about business in general. Um, Border Buddy is our sponsor on the podcast, so make sure you go to our website at letstalksupplychain.com and make sure you follow them. Go and check out their website, which is borderbuddy.com, and follow them on their social media links as well. So thank you again, Graham. Great, great show and great topic. Thanks for having me. If you liked this episode and want to hear more from Graham about how they are disrupting the customs industry, check out his other episodes at letstalksupplychain.com forward slash episode dash 68 or forward slash season two dash episode four. Next time on the show, we are talking to Tom Pauls from SCL Search. We are answering all the questions from our listeners about some of the biggest companies and their hiring processes and how they are hiring supply chain professionals, what you need to know for career advancement or career advice and getting hired by the company you want. So check out that, that episode next week. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes to be featured and so other people can find the show. And remember, go to ships Com, that's S-H-I-P-Z.com to get more information about the online platform my team and I are working on. Thank you once again for listening to the show. Have an amazing day. And remember, everybody, ship happens. <laughs>